And we'll just read verses 7 through 12. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins." Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. That is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to this final session, I pray that you would just drive the nails deeply into our hearts, that we might love one another, that we might demonstrate the glory of God through our demonstration of your character of love. Lord, thank you for all who have been here throughout this weekend. I pray that every person here would be changed in some way, shape, or form to take that which we have learned and to drive it home into our hearts and into our lives and to love one another in extravagant, lavish, new, wonderful ways and that we might be a a wonderful, contagious influence to those around us that they too would continue in love all the more. The word that we've heard so many times is abound. Might we abound in love. We pray for listening ears and for application to our hearts and to our lives as we listen to Brother Alex. And we're thankful to you for this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, I thought revival was going to break out there a moment ago. I thought some of you got baptized with the Holy Spirit or something. Gee. <laughs> No, that was very good. Very good. And you are right, Steve. If anyone should have fun, it should be us because we're going to heaven. It doesn't matter what happens down on this earth. The new heavens and the new earth are prepared for us in an imperishable body. I mean, it's only the best is ahead. I often feel sorry for people who have to listen to this on um, CDs or on their computer because they don't know what's going on here. Probably better they don't. (laughs) They knew how much fun we were having, they would be jealous of us. Say, why couldn't I have gone to that conference? Why didn't they tell me? Well, it's hard to believe, but we are coming to the end, and the end, there is an end. Uh, I want to give you an assignment. We have taken much of this material, particularly the biblical eldership material, and just a number of months ago came out with a a website because we realized this is the way young people are learning and it can go any place in the world. Mailing is becoming more and more difficult. It's interesting how many countries are becoming more and more hostile to missionaries and the gospel. And um, this is a way we can just cross all boundaries and uh, political movements by being on the World Wide Web So I have an assignment for you. If you would go to our new website, biblicaleldership.com, biblicaleldership.com. It's very easy to find. We need input. You say, well, I'm not much of a computer person. You're the very people we want to talk to. Is this website easy to navigate? Is it profitable? Would you ever use it? You don't even have to be an elder. It deals with the Christian life, Bible reading, prayer, 
we need input now. It's just brand new. Do you like it? Don't like it? We can improve anything. We can change anything right now before it gets uh, uh, more exposure. So if you would help us, we would deeply appreciate it. And if you have any complaints, just say, I couldn't find my way around. The speaker was boring. Uh, Could you find someone else a little more attractive looking? Anything like that. We don't care. You will be helping many other people. You have to have different eyes. So biblicaleldership.com. Is this worth even doing? It's so much work. Oh, my heavens. So if you say, don't waste your time, we'll get the message. That's short. Now we've been talking about how do we think... How do we strategize to cultivate love in our churches? How are we going to stimulate and stir people up to love and to do good deeds? How are we going to do this? Let's don't just say it's something that needs to be done. Let's do it. But we need ideas specific. So I said we need to study love from the scriptures and that will motivate you. Uh, Second, it's scriptural to pray about this. You're on safe ground when you pray these scriptural prayers. Now, next, teach love. Teach love. And I'll have to move quickly because, as I said, we will be done by 8 o'clock. And I want to be able to keep my word and be able to come back someday and not have people say, don't have that fellow back because he went over 8 o'clock. Teach love. Uh, During our Lord's public ministry on earth, he taught his followers stirring new teachings on love, unlike anyone else who ever was before him. And during the final hours, just prior to his crucifixion, he gave us some of the most profound teaching on love, the new commandment. He taught love, and he taught unique, radical new teachings like Unlike the rabbis, love your enemies and those who persecute you, you pray for them. The unlovely, have them to your home, not just the famous and the rich. Now, following our Lord's example, the apostles do the same thing in the New Testament scriptures. It's absolutely amazing how much John says about love. And most of you think John is the apostle of love. But did you know Paul says more about love than John does? Did you know that? Here's Paul, this brilliant rabbi who was converted. And you think the guy must be a stiff, you know. He would not be a nice guy to be around. And yet his talk of love and his gentleness and his patience with, with uh, erring Christians is, is nothing short of amazing and a great model to us. Paul is a model of love. Just look at his teachings. You think of the major New Testament passages, Matthew 22, Romans 12, Romans 13, 1 Corinthians 13, Ephesians 3, 1 John 4. I mean, it's just sprinkled throughout the the New Testament. This is a major subject to the New Testament people. The center of our message is the cross of Christ, substitutionary penal atonement of Christ. And what is the motivating power there? He loved us and he gave himself for us. So let's look at how we teach love. I'll move through this quickly. And remember, you're all taking it easy. You're relaxed uh, on this Saturday uh, afternoon. Your fingers are not worn out. And uh, you can read all this later. How do we teach love? Well, first of all, teach the 15 descriptions of love. People most frequently sing about love. Did you ever stop and listen to the songs on the radio. What are most of the songs expressing? Well, love. I mean, that's what you want to sing about. You don't normally sing about uh, toothbrush uh, and brushing your teeth. Uh, at least I haven't heard one yet. I'm sure there is a song. 
or, or how to turn your computer on. No, most songs are about human emotion. They're about love and feelings and being moved. Uh, in, 19, in the 1960s, I think it's somewhere around 67, uh, the Beatles, one of their most popular songs was All You Need Is Love. Do you remember all the, all the old people here? They know that song. And uh, it was, it's a very profound song. All you need is love. Love is all you need. Love, love, love. Love, love, love. Love is all you need. All you need is love. Uh, the word all you need is love, it's very easy to memorize, by the way, unless you've completely lost your mind, is repeated 39 times and uh, all the other phrases are repeated only 12 times, just over and over. It was very popular. In fact, you'll still hear it on the radio. All you need is love. The problem with that song is fundamental. They never tell us what love is. If love is all we need, please tell me what is it? But all you need is love. Love is all you need. Love, love, love. I just can see bubbles going off right now. And, uh, flowers and, and, and beauty. And... It's worthless. It's fluff. If this is so important, I want to know what it is. And they never tell us. They never tell us. But God does not disappoint us. He tells us exactly what love is. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, you have the 15 descriptions of love. And in 1 John, we're told what love is. Love is the self-giving, God giving his only son. He could not have given more. It's not possible. He didn't give angels. He didn't give money. He gave his beloved one in, in, in selfless, self-sacrificing uh, actions for us upon the cross. He gave of himself in obedience to his Father. The greatest description of love can be found in the cross. And then for real specifics, we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And you have the 15 descriptions of love. Now, let me just make an interesting comment about this. In verses 1 to 3, chapter 13, he says this. Love is indispensable to everything you do. Now, if love is indispensable to everything you do and every spiritual gift and your knowledge and your wisdom... What is it? Right? That's the question I have. Well, then he does not disappoint us. He gives the 15 descriptions of love. Now, I'd like you to raise your right paw. How many of you have heard sermons? I didn't say the question yet. Uh, how many of you have heard a sermon on the 15 descriptions of love? Okay, you got an assignment. We need to do this in our churches. I was actually in Ireland, and I, was, uh, I took a whole series on the 15 descriptions of love. And uh, an Irish preacher came up to me, and he said, you know something? I have traveled and preached all my life. I've actually never heard a sermon on the 15 descriptions of love, and it's very important. So this would be a great series in your church, the 15 descriptions of love. Now, uh, let's just look at them very rapidly. Love is patient, and love is kind. So patience means, uh, you can't uh, beat the King James here. Love suffers long. Can't beat that. And it means uh, love suffers long in the sense of when you've been hurt or wounded or uh, been gypped or ill-treated. It suffers long. That's the first quality. If you were to ask God, what's the, what's the first quality? It's patient. Love is patient. Love suffers long. It's forbearing. God is forbearing. Aren't you glad he's forbearing? If you're a loving person, you will be forbearing. 
You're, do, you're that way with your children. If I had to live with your children, I'd kill them. But you don't kill them because you want grandchildren. But the reason is you love them and you put up with them year after year after year and all day scolding them. I watched my, my daughters now raising their children. I said, how do we do that? It never stops all day long, all day long. But you love them. You're patient and forbearing with them. And when they're not your children, you can't forbear. An hour is enough. And you say, these children are, you know, demonic. There's something wrong with them. <laughs> or like the mother who says, you know, oh, oh, they're just tired. That's always the excuse. Oh, they're so tired. But you should see them when they sleep. You know, they look like angels. But in the day, of course, they look like the devil. But anyway, they're always, oh, they're tired. They're tired. That's why they're so bad. Reminds me of a time. Uh, we had this family in our house, and I look in. The, these are the worst kids I've ever seen in my life. And I look in the living room, and the, these kids, this is not an exaggeration. They are swinging on our curtains, jumping off the couch and swinging on our curtains. So I go to my wife. I said, sweetheart, there's a bunch of monkeys in our living room. They're swinging on the curtains. She said, well, I wanted new ones anyway. <laughs> of course, the mother said they're tired. <laughs> they're real tired. When they get tired, they swing on curtains. <laughs> How do they put up with it? Love suffers long. It's, it's long-suffering. And then it's kind. Someone said uh, uh, kindness is love in work clothing. They're, these two virtues of love are really two sides of a coin. They, they must go together. This is the character of love. It suffers long. One of the beautiful characteristics of love is that it has understanding. It understands people. It understands what life is really like and how hard it is. And it gives you patience and it gives you long-suffering with people. So the more you have understanding of the human dilemma and of people and their problems, uh, the more you'll be able to bear with them. Because you do have to bear with people. It's not easy. It's not easy working with people. I understand why people go off into a cabin and disappear. Uh, After a number of years or a lifetime working with people, you do want to scream. You want to jump off a cliff sometime. And, and this is scriptural, by the way. Moses, Moses in Numbers 11, said to God, kill me. What have I done to deserve these people? Just take my life. So if you've ever felt, take my life, you are in good company. Mosaic company. Or if you wanted to quit, this is why. But I always remember, remind myself, the Lord put up with me. I can put up with anybody. Now, he does something very unusual here. He moves from these two positive virtues, which I would expect him to go down a list of positive characteristics of love. But he doesn't do that. He switches to eight negative statements. Now, why does he do that? The reason is this. These eight negative statements about love were the very problems in this church. Jealousy. Look at chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. There was a lot of jealousy. You have more gifts, you have more knowledge. You have more tongues than I have. And it was jealousy and, and, and selfishness and uh, pride. And uh, this was causing all the division in this church. It was a fighting church. So he switches to the eight negative statements, which are all characteristics of this church. But notice this. They all have one characteristic, and that is this, the self-oriented life. The self-oriented life. Selfishness. All of these vices that he is going to deal with, are really covered under self-love or self-orientation. 
So he, and I, all I can do is mention now, uh, love is not envious. That's the top of the list. And normally when you see the top of the list, you see a key item. And we know from the book there was a lot of envy. If you look through the whole Bible, you'll see how much envy and jealousy destroy the people of God. Like, for example, Cain killed Abel. And then you've got uh, Joseph and his brothers who hate his guts. It's jealousy, the Bible says. And they're prepared to kill their younger brother. You talk about jealousy. That's where jealousy will push you to kill or to hate or spread rumors about people. There's no end to the power of jealousy. And uh, it's, it's a sin through the people of God all through the Old Testament. Saul was so jealous of David. Instead of saying, in love, he would have said, oh, thank God for this wonderful young man you have given me to build my kingdom and to protect your people. Instead, he takes a spear and tries to kill him. Why did he try to kill him? He was jealous of him said, this boy is going to take and steal all my glory. Everyone's saying he kills 10,000. I only kill 1,000. I'm going to get rid of this guy. That's how evil jealousy can be. And you can be jealous and there is no end to your maliciousness. Arrogant, puffed up, big word in the Corinthians. Rude, in other words, a very practical side. Little tiny little things in which we're rude. Like, for example, in this church, some spoke while others are speaking. Some start eating before others even get there. All rude, ill-mannered impropriety in the church. Reminds me once being in a church and kids were cracking these uh, uh, water bottles, (laughs) chunking on candy real loud. I couldn't believe it during the service. I could hardly hear. I I talked to one of the leaders and I said, you know, these kids are cracking bottles and chewing. He said, oh, we know, we know, but we can't say anything. We can't say. I said, well, you know what? They're really rude, and they're being taught not to love. They're just concerned about their bottles, and they're chunking on candy. And then selfishness, and then easily angered or irritable and touchy. Oh, I'll tell you, one of the most damaging emotions in the church is what I call the I've been hurt syndrome. And when people have been hurt, their emotions have been hurt, they literally think they can do anything. They can divide a church. They can backbite. They can lie. They can pass false rumors. They can gossip. Why? I've been hurt. I'm going to write a book someday. I've been hurt. And how I justify all kinds of evil. Someone hurt me. Easily angered, irritable, touchy. You didn't look at me. It's like the lady who called me up and said, what have I done wrong? What have I done wrong? I said, I don't know what you did wrong. She said, you didn't talk to me on Sunday. What did I do wrong? I said, well, you know, there's like a couple hundred other people here to talk to. Just all filled with self, 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 and easily hurt, easily wounded. You didn't look at me. You didn't say hi to me. You didn't shake my hand. What have I done wrong? Resentful. Ooh, holding grudges. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good one. You know, actually it means keeping a record of evils. In other words, you've got a file drawer full of all the things people have done against you. And as soon as you have a chance, you're going to tell them, did you know that 30 years ago you said this about me? I'm not joking. There are people, I don't even like to be with them because the moment we're with them, their ministry is to remind us of how we hurt them 35 years ago and they can't let go. I have people that have written me for years telling me how I have hurt them. I don't even remember any of this, but they have the clearest memory of how they have been wounded. 
And they are never going to let go. And their ministry is to bring you down and let you know you're a pretty bad dude. It's not a joke. It's very serious. In fact, we've come with some people who just have nothing to do with them because they will not let these things go. They're unforgiving and they're walking in, in sin. If Christianity is anything, it's to forgive. And uh, especially after you've apologized 35 times and it's never enough. Why? Because they're full of themselves. Everything is about how they feel. My friends, if you live in this earth, you're going to get wounded. And you're going to get wounded many times. But here's a way to help yourself. You've wounded other people. You just don't know about it or won't admit it. So get over it. It's life under the sun, as Solomon would say. And does not rejoice at evil. You hear of some church and the pastor's fallen in sin. You never liked that church. Good. I'm glad that happened. No, no. Love, it never rejoices in anything evil. Any hurts, any wounds, any disgraces. It, 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 it suffers over them. But it rejoices with the truth. And then he says it uh, bears all things and it, uh, hopes all things and believes all things, uh, endures all things. In other words, the absolute total tenacious uh, nature of love. And if you want an example, look at Moses and the children of Israel. That's the perfect example of the tenacious nature of love. And look at Paul with the Corinthians. Anyone else would have just washed their hands and said, that group's a bunch of losers. I'm not dealing with them. No, he just keeps coming back again. And he even tells them, I deal with you in patience. Now, he's prepared to discipline them. He tells them, but I'd rather come with gentleness. But I will come with a rod if you want that. But I'd rather come in a different way. Now, the 15 descriptions of love are wonderful. Whenever I marry a couple or if I meet a newly married couple, I will say something like this. Have you studied the 15 descriptions of love? They'll all say no. I say, well, here's my assignment to you. I actually give this on their wedding day. People love it. Homework on their wedding day. But I'm very gracious. I say, when you come back from your honeymoon. But here's the assignment. If you want to start on your, uh, well, on your honeymoon, I'll even be happier. I want you to take 15 weeks, one virtue a week. One vice a week. So the first week of your marriage, back from the honeymoon, the honeymoon is now over. Reality has come upon you. The first week, all week, you're going to study love is patient. Love is patient. Love suffers long. Love is forbearing. All week, you're going to put stickums around the house. You're going to look up the word. You're going to read a commentary on it. And then you're going to talk all week about how we implement this in our marriage. All right, second week, second week, love is kind. That's a good one. And uh, you're going to think of all kinds of ways you can be kind to one another. Kindness is love and work clothing. And you're going to define uh, kindness for me. Third week, love is not envious. Oh, yes, married couples get envious over the craziest things. The children love you more than me. The grandchildren always come to you first and not to me first. Of course, you always give them money and candy. No wonder the little... Greedy little kids, that's all they want. They don't care about you. Oh, it's amazing what people will fight over and and the children will fight over. You would think we're sinners. We know what love is. We know what it is not. And you find out love is not easy. It's not easy to love in this sinful way. It's not easy. It's a lifetime of learning. And that's why young couples, sometimes they get all excited. Oh, it's so terrible. I shouldn't have married this guy. He's a creep. I said, we told you he was a creep before you married him. In fact, I have to tell you something. And we told you this. You're marrying a sinner. Actually, he's a perverse sinner. 
totally selfish. Oh, he is? Yes. The good thing is this. You're the same way. You're a creep and you're a sinner and you're perverse and you need Christ and you need the Holy Spirit and you need to obey. You need to follow the principles that God has given you. Now, you've got the rest of your life to work on it. You can either work fast on it or go through a lot of misery. What would you like to do? If you'd like to work on it, we'll work with you. Marriage is not easy because marriage exposes who we really, really are. And we're not that neat. On the outside, we look good. You know what they say, we often marry for looks, but then you have to live with character. Some people look really good on the outside. As soon as you get to know them, you go, how did I not see that? I think of how many couples we've actually done that. We say, do you not see who you're marrying? Oh, he's so handsome. He's got the biggest muscles I've ever seen. And a beautiful, big, thick head of hair. You don't marry that guy. We know he's got problems. Uh, Yes, he's very good looking. He's very powerful looking. But he's a control freak. This is what's going to happen to you. They marry him. They say, all right, now we've got to work through this. Okay. Enough of that. Notice, we have to teach love in the Christian life. Love in the Christian life. The Christian life is actually be be characterized by love. Listen to what B.B. Warfield said from Princeton. Self-sacrificing love is thus made the essence of the Christian life. Let me read that again. Self-sacrificing love is thus made the essence of the Christian life. Uh, The apostle says this, walk in love. That's the Christian life. Behave in love. Conduct yourself in love. But here's the standard, as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, Ephesians 5.2. So we have to teach people the Christian life at its very essence is a life of self-sacrifice, of walking as Christ loved, which means this, it's other-oriented. We're self-oriented. First thing I get up in the morning, I look in the mirror. Oh, I'm looking good today, yes. Thinking all day, everything's making me happy. I'm looking, you know, about me all the time. Love is always looking out at others. You may not even look in the mirror. You're just looking at others. Are they doing well? Are they advancing? Uh, What do they need? Love is other-oriented. Self is looking only inward. Someone wrote this, John Eady. Walk in love. Every step is to be one of love. The whole tenor and course of life are to be characterized by love. Not only on the Sabbath... But on every day, not only in the sanctuary, but the house and the workplace. Then love in the Christian home. Oh, don't get me on this one. We'll never get out of here by eight o'clock. Never. Love in the Christian home. Now, I said to you earlier, the new commandment is love one another as I've loved you, right? That's the new commandment. And I said to you, it goes through all the arteries and veins of the New Testament. Now, here's a perfect example of the new commandment in the home. But there's something radical about this. You've got to get this. In this passage, we have something that would never have been taught in the ancient world. It's not even taught today. It is this. The man is to initiate the love. And Christ's love, who gave himself to redeem us. Now, we normally, when we look at the Christian home, we'll say something like this. Oh, yes, a Christian home uh, should have the Bible. should pray before we eat. Someone said when we get to heaven, we'll find out that 99% of our prayers were said at the supper table. Um, Raise our children right. Give them some instruction. Get them to Sunday school. I think Paul, looking at the Christian home, would say this. The Christian home is marked by love and the man initiating it. 
We normally think that's what the woman does. The man goes out and works, brings home the money, plays football. But Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for it. That's the unique distinctive of the Christian home, love initiated by the man. Now, if you remember years ago, there was, back in the 70s, all these conferences for women on submission. Did, you, did you, Some of you remember that? They were all over the country, thousands of, maybe ten, hundreds of thousands of women going to these conferences on learning to submit to their husband. And of course, the husbands paid for it. And they were so happy. Go to this conference, honey. You'll learn to be a good wife. Thousands went. I never heard of one conference for men. You know Why? They wouldn't go. How about a conference on men loving their wives as Christ loved the church? No man would go. Is it too hard? It's too embarrassing. Their wife might want to hear the CDs after. Point at them all day. This is a true story. Missionaries came to this island, and they got to this island, and uh, the elders on the island said to the missionaries, we want you to teach this whole week, you're going to be with us, on women's dress and women's role and women's submission. And the missionary said, no, we're not going to do that. Oh, no, the elders said, we need that on this island. Women need to learn this. Missionary said, no, we're not going to teach that. Well, what are you going to teach? We're going to teach the husbands how to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Oh, we don't need that here. Yes, you do. So that whole week, guess what they taught on? The man's role in the home. At the end of the week, the elder said, now we know why. (laughs) Why you taught that? Problem isn't with the women. Problem is with the men. So Ephesians teaches something totally radical. Men initiating the love and being the lovers in the home. That is unique Christian teaching. Then love in the local church family. Uh, Jesus said when they look at you, they're going to say, oh, those, those are Christ's disciples. They have such good doctrine. Those are Christ's disciples. They go to church every Sunday and they give almost 10% of their money sometimes. No, he said, when they'll see you, they'll say, you belong to me and follow me because you'll, they'll see my love in you. I want to remind you, the local church is a close-knit family of brothers and sisters. And in a family, love should be the characteristics. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, don't neglect coming together. Instead, stir up one another to good works and to love. The local church should be characterized by love. Now, I know the local church is hard. I know that. It would be so much easier to have church at home on your couch, TV church, watching the TV preachers, nice cup of coffee, and you don't have to deal with the sad banana people with all their problems and getting hurt. It'd be so much easier, wouldn't it? I would be such a better Christian if it wasn't those people around me. But it's with all the weaknesses and faults that love is taught. It's modeled, it's learned, it's tested, it's practiced, it's matured by dealing with the difficulties of people, the painful conflicts, having hurts and injustices and reconcile the strange relationships, helping uh, needy members. All is a test and a tool for developing agape love in our life. And frankly, you can't do it on your couch watching the TV preachers. It's, it's learned and developed in the hard-nosed life of dealing with one another's problems. Just like in marriage, you learn to love only when you're married. You can read all the books you want on love until you're married to your inner church and dealing with the rough and tumble life of reality. You, you can't learn love. It's just a theory. Love, the, the, the local church is literally 
a laboratory of love. It's a spiritual workshop. And all the problems, and I know they're endless. They are literally endless. And sometimes you get tired of the problems. But it's a laboratory that love is patient, love suffers long, love is kind. Love does not brag. It's tenacious. It endures all things. And then... Love for all people. I want you to notice uh, this love that we're talking about is not just for our friends. It's not for our exclusive little church group. There's many exclusive groups. Jonathan Edwards said this, uh, talking about Christians uh, who think they have so much love, but they have almost nothing. Uh, They are full of dear affections for some and full of bitterness towards others. They are knit in their own party them that approve of them, love them and admire them, but are fierce against those who they dislike. So yes, we got our little exclusive group, our little party, and we love, we love everyone in that party. Oh, those other people, I can tell you all their faults. But Paul said, love them all, love everyone. And we are to love people who aren't lovely. We're to love people who might really oppose us and be against us. Jesus said that. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, well, what benefit is that for you? Even the mafia loves the mafia. Uh, That's a paraphrase. Uh, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more is that than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Our love is supernatural. It goes out to people who are not lovable. And then plan to teach God's principles of love. Uh, I think... We need to have a plan about this. And how are you going to do this? You need a plan in your church how we're going to teach these great, powerful principles. So I would suggest maybe you have a summer of love. You have a summer where you'll go through the great passages on love, or you'll go through the 15 descriptions of love, and you can bring in lots of other passages. And I, I want to, I'm going to assure you the people will be shocked. They'll say, I knew that was there, but I had no idea what it was saying. I had no idea God's demands upon me. I thought giving people a donut on Sunday morning was love. I didn't know I have to put up with all that guff, the problems of people, and still pray for them and love them. So teach love. So study love, pray for love, teach love. Next, model love, model love. Now, a lot of people don't learn a lot through reading. Some of you here love, love, love to read. I, there's a young girl, she's reading her head off now, and that's fantastic. I even saw her a book. Just reading, it's wonderful. But you know, a lot of people don't read. It's very hard for them to read. There may be physical reasons for that. And do you really know that most of human history, people did not have books? Books were in monasteries or in churches or professional places. Did you know that? They didn't have a hundred books on their shelves. They didn't have it. It wasn't in existence until after the printing press. Well, how in the world did people learn? Well, they were read too, and that's a certain skill. But they learned by modeling. Did you know that? Imitation. And people still learn the greatest lessons of life today, not by sticking their head in a book, but by watching their parents and grandparents and the elders at the church and people around them. So if we want to teach love, we have to model it. There has to be living examples. Christ was the greatest model of love. He flushed out love. Now, God has made us in such a way that we could call it role modeling. Uh, imitation. 
you probably would never admit how much you imitate other people. You probably think, I'm this independent agent, last of the Mohegans. No, you're not. Your language you learn from your parents. All your values you learn from your parents. The very way, the tone you talk, you learn from your parents. And the strangest thing in life as you get older, you wind up repeating your parents. Dreadful. In fact, sometimes my, my wife will say to me, that's just what your father would say. Now, I never say to her, that's what your mother would do. Don't ever do that. This is good marital advice. Just, I just saved some of your marriages. <laughs> Never say your mother is like that. <laughs> it will start World War Three. <laughs> the Bible says, uh, uh, Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. Be imitators of Christ. Paul said, be imitators of me. Role modeling. Young people think they're so independent. Oh, my. Of course, part of being young is being dumb. Go into their room, and they got these big, giant posters of people they follow. Big posters. I'm going, oh, I'm glad that you're your own man. You're your own man. You walk, you dress like that guy, everything else. Paul even says to Timothy, he says, follow my example. And then he says to Timmy, be an example. Be an example of love. So he says to Timothy, follow my example. And later he says, be an example to others. Both... Uh, Titus and Timothy are commanded by Paul to be role models, to be examples in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, be examples of all these areas of life. Do you know why? That's how people learn. They watch you, they follow you. Now, since we learn so much through role modeling, as you might expect, the Bible is full of role models. The Bible is full of biography. Did you ever realize that? Start off in the Bible. You got all this teaching about Abraham, chapters and chapters about Abraham and uh, Isaac and Jacob. Do you know we have 66 chapters about David? Books on, on the life of Moses, God teaches us through the examples. You got four gospels of the life of Christ. Much of the New Testament is an example of Paul's living and, and dealing with problems and people. Now, we, we could talk about many of these role models, but let me just pick one very rapidly, very rapidly, because we want to be done on time. I think of King David. 66 chapters about King David. Must be very important. So let me give you one example from David of love for God. We can show you examples of love for others, but love for God. Let me give you an example. You remember uh, David became king of Judah, and at one time there were two kings in the north, Ishbosheth. David, king in the south. This happened for about two years. And then finally, Ishbosheth was killed. His general was killed. And remember, just before this whole time period, the Philistines had killed Saul and Jonathan, basically took over the whole of the north. Israel was in a weakened condition. They were under their enemy, the Philistines. They had two kings. They had civil strife, civil war. It was a disaster. The people of God were in a disaster. Finally, finally, David becomes king of the whole nation. Now, what do you do when you're the king of a whole nation? You're appointed to a high position. The first thing you do is usually an indication of your agenda and your priorities. This happens even today. When a new president takes over, a prime minister, they listen to the first thing that person says because that's probably going to characterize their rule. What's one of the first things David does? Brilliant. It's brilliant. 
He takes the city of Jerusalem, creates a new capital in a strategic place between the north and the south. The nation has been divided now. Horrible feelings towards one another. There's been murder on both sides. And then he goes and takes the Ark of the Covenant, the most sacred object in Israel's history. The Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of the presence of God. And under the rule of Saul, it had basically been put in a house. For 70 plus years, it was neglected. And the first thing David does is after he takes Jerusalem, he gathers the entire nation in jubilation and moves the ark from this private home into the city of Jerusalem where he pitches a special tent for it. And they bring the ark, the entire nation, all the priests with singing and dancing and trumpets and the the sounds of instruments. And he puts the ark in Jerusalem. And David is saying this. God is at the center of this nation. He hasn't been for a long time. God is at the center of this nation. Worship is at the center of this nation. Now listen carefully because we often miss this. David restores the priesthood, develops the Levitical choirs. The entire city is buzzing with music. In Second Chronicles, we're told, of the choirs, the musical instruments, the writing of the psalms, the singing of the psalms, the reading of the law. Literally, the Bible says it's buzzing with praise to God. And so David was teaching what he says, I love the law of God, loves the house of God. And he put worship, he put God at the center because he loved God. All his acts showed this. That is a wonderful example for us today that in our homes, the Lord must be at the center. In our local churches, whatever activities we have, the Lord must be at the center. The worship of our Lord, the remembrance of him in the bread and the cup, the singing of his praises, the reading of his word, the proclamation of his word. He's at the center of it all. And once we put programs or social agendas or feeding the poor, all these things are good things. Once they're at the center of the, the activity of the people of God, you just, you're just left love for God. So it's a marvelous example that I've only just touched on. If you looked into it more, you would see it's a role model of what love for God looks like. And then Christian biographies. Now, again... Uh, we learn through watching others. And Christian biographies are marvelous to give to young people, to give them a love for God and a love for one another. They read the life of Hudson Taylor or George Mueller. I was amazed to, over the years, read that how many of the servants of God were touched by the biographies of two men particularly, George Mueller and Hudson Taylor, Amy Carmichael, Jim Elliott, Louis Palau, Ruth and Billy Graham, Francis and Edith Schaefer, all of them look back to biographies of Mr. George Mueller and Mr. Hudson Taylor. So I'm 14 or 15 years of age. I don't know exactly, but something like that. And I'm at a camp all summer, every summer until I was almost 20. God used it to keep me out of trouble in the streets uh, in New Jersey. You should be praying for me. I was raised in Newark, New Jersey. You should feel sorry for me right now. Send your offerings in. 
Every summer, I was at camp all summer, and it was two solid months, and he didn't come home. That saved me from getting in trouble on the streets, and we had a wonderful leader, a wonderful leader. Now, at that time, at 14 and 15, I could not have weighed more than 140 pounds, real skinny, and I, I did have a beautiful head of hair. Let's weep right now what has ever happened. But this camp director loved young people, and he was a great, great leader for us young people. But one of the jobs we had was to read a biography. He loved biographies, missionary biographies. And that was part of our training at camp. We had to read biographies. He understood something. Young people need a challenge. They need a vision. Uh, young people in the world, they've got their heroes. I guarantee you, they've got their role models. They're not very good. I wouldn't want them. But we got good role models. And we had to read books. Like Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secrets. So you're a 14, 15-year-old boy. And you're growing in your faith. And you read a book like that. You are never the same. You are never the same because a, a vision is put before you. This is the Christian life. This is the kind of love for God and love for humanity that characterized George Mueller and uh, Hudson Taylor. It's in your head now. Nothing you can do about it. And it sets that model that you imitate. Now, I have to tell you a funny story. This man who was our, our, our leader as uh, teenagers was a monster of a man, about six foot five, red hair, 300 pounds. He looked like he belonged on a football team. Had this deep voice. So we're just little skinny kids. And he used to say this to us. You read this biography or I'll sit on you. Well, I didn't want him sitting on me because he'd break every bone in my body. So I read that biography as fast as I could. You read that biography. I'm reading. I'm reading, please. Don't sit on me. That's literally what he said. If you don't read this biography, I'm going to sit on you. It's terrifying. No wonder I'm emotionally crushed. <laughs> now, I have out there on the table the Labrie story, Francis and Edith Schaefer. I put that out there for a reason. And that is one of the most beautiful stories on love and opening their home, how they brought people to their home at great cost, at great cost. Every bit of their furniture had been destroyed by young people coming to their home. And just waiting on God, just exactly like George Mueller, to supply their needs. And they actually prayed, Lord, keep away certain people, bring those you want. And then, as you know by now, the great biography that has touched my life so much is Robert Chapman's life, the Apostle of Love. That has been the role model for me. In fact, everyone in our church has to read that book. And the reason they have to read it, we will not let them work or serve in any area of the church. There's a couple books they have to read first. And one is that uh, Agape Leadership. And we say this to them. You're going to read the life of Robert Chapman. Here's why we're giving you this uh, short little biography. You can read it in 45 minutes. Is because these are the attitudes we are expecting in our church. And we will not tolerate any other attitudes but these attitudes. I believe it has saved us much division and heartache that everyone knows this is the kind of church we want to be. Then church leaders, church leaders. Many young people do not have Christian parents. Or they've got Christian parents who are out to lunch someplace. How are they going to learn about the Christian life, the life of love for God, love for neighbor? They watch the elders in the church. They're role models. We had one lady in our church for a long time, and oh, a lovely, lovely lady, and served so many ways. She just only recently had to leave because of age and going to live with her children, but, oh, she served our children and served. And one day I said, you know, you're just such a, a, a loving, I mean, she's an older woman. I said, just a loving Christian woman. You're such a model. And she said, well, I had good models in our church when I grew up. And I thought, yeah, that's right. You saw these models, and now you're copying, imitating these models. 
that's the way it is. So I want to remind you, elders, you're models. And if you are the kind of models that are kind and caring for people and thoughtful, and you love worship and singing the Lord's praises and hospitable, well, you know what? You're setting the tone in the church, and you don't even know it, but the next generation, at least some of them, the key ones, the ones who love the Lord, they will follow it. Because that's what they that's how that's how we really learn. And then parents. We talk about training leaders, don't we? We talk a lot about that. You know, I've not read a single book yet, and I'm sure it's out there. I just haven't read it. There's too much to read. Best training ground for, for leaders is right in the home. You know how many missionaries are on the mission field because of their parents were missionaries and the parents before it were missionaries? Five generations of tailors, by the way. Five generations of tailors on the mission field today. One of the generation just died within the last year. I don't know, it was the third or fourth. And you often hear about missionary kids that go bad. And that's true. But do you know most of them go good? And many of them go back to the mission field. Why did they do that? They saw their parents serving the Lord. They said, I want that kind of life. So I want to remind you, parents, and may I speak for a moment to the grandparents. How many are grandparents, right? Be truthful now. Oh, we got a lot of grandparents here. Do you know grandparents have a unique relationship? I can't even explain it. I cannot explain it. There's something about a child's relationship to the grandparents. It's, it's marvelous. They have some kind of instinct that you are really something. Well, first of all, you're old. You look old to them. You look like you've got one foot on the grave and the other on a banana peel. You do. One of my grandsons who spends a lot of time with us, he said, Grandpa, you're old. I'm not old, I keep telling him. What's wrong with you? Wear glasses. All I can say is to his eyes, I must really look like I'm almost dead. But there's a natural love for grandparents. I can remember it very vividly as a child myself. I only had one grandmother, no other grandparents. And we had a very special relationship. I loved being with her. I want to tell you, as grandparents, you can teach those kids about love for God and love for neighbor in a way even your parents can't do it. See, parents are on the front line every day. They're getting beat up and they're beating you up. And, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard. But the grandparents are sort of a little aloof, you know, and they only do good things. And I always like to remind children, uh, Christmas is only five months away, so tell your grandparents what you want now. There's something special about that role. So as grandparents, if you catch this vision, you are a powerful teacher in the life of your grandchildren. Powerful teacher. And teach them about the Lord. Be that role model. They'll watch you. It may be 20 years from now. It may be 30 years from now. And they don't even know it. They're copying you, and they're remembering what you said to them. I have a, one grandson, he's nine, and I don't even know how this happened. We have him a lot uh, because his mother's very sick, so he's a lot, uh, much time with us. And the other day in the car, he goes, now, Grandpa, what is puberty? It's a big word he heard. So I explained to him what, what that is. So a day or two goes by, and he's sitting by me, and he goes, now, explain that again to me. What is puberty? <laughs> I had to explain, what's a big major change in your life, and here's what you're going to expect. Well, he brought this up. My talking to him will mean much more than his dad and mom will sit down with all this scientific information and all this. So I'm telling you, they're listening to you. You can teach them love. And you can be that role model that you love to serve God. And that's your first priority. 
And what a wonderful thing to be in the home of your grandparents where God is the center. They'll never forget that. So do not underestimate parents. Do not underestimate grandparents. Your power to role model love, and it's something you'll never forget. Now, one thing just before I go to the next point. I can go back in my memory now. I can go back in my memory over 50 years ago. And I'd gotten saved about 11 years of age. I was now raised in a Christian home at a Bible camp. And that camp became my life until I was 20 years of age. And when I get a chance, I go back there in New York. And I like to spend a couple days there uh, reminiscing, remembering, and praying and praising. It's almost like a spiritual retreat for me. So when I miss that in a year, I just, I really, it's something I miss. I just literally lost all my thoughts here. What was I going to tell you about role modeling? Well, anyway, camp was very important to me, and that's where I learned all these things. <laughs> that's the sum of the point. I literally forgot what I'm saying. Hey, can we take this off the tape? They're going to think I lost my mind. They're going to think I was drinking at this place. I mean, I know it's a nice new liberal church, but man... Okay, there was some reason I was going to bring that up. Let me open my notes, but it, it doesn't matter. Now, let's look at uh, guard love, guard love. So we're going to study love. This is how we're going to provoke love. We are going to pray, teach, model. So I want to really emphasize this modeling. You are a model. You might be a bad model, by the way, a very bad model. But then guard love. This is the negative side to it. And we do need to warn people. It's not all just positive stuff. We need to warn people that their love for God and love for one another is constantly under assault. Uh, So this is part of the ministry to warn people that the devil and the world and the flesh want to steal your love for God. And that's why John says in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, which is a very serious statement. He says, you're not a Christian. Now, we had a young lady in our church who got married. And before the wedding, her father, who was a fellow elder with me for years, comes up to me and says, I've got to show you something. He shows me this big, thick uh, wedding uh, book with all the dresses and that. And he says, look at this. So here's this picture, a full-page picture of this beautiful bride. And she has this wedding dress. It must have cost $50,000, all diamonds on it and all kinds of sparkling things and lights going off and all of this. And she's looking down at her wedding dress. She's looking down at her wedding dress. And the caption says this, Love him, but love your dress more. Love him, but love your dress more. Now that's perversity love your dress more than your husband it's not that far off though as soon as i saw it i said i've got an illustration here love christ but love your job more love christ but love your securities more love christ but love your hobbies more love christ but love your car more oh we can fill in a lot of things there we have to be vigilant vigilant in our love Because the world is trying to steal that love. It's trying to steal our affections. Satan is trying to steal our affections. And love grows cold. And it weakens. 
and the world takes us over. And before long, it's just going through the motions. There's not much there because our affections are now gone. So guard your love for Christ. And may I say to you, there will be plenty of contenders for your love. Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. Jesus said, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. In other words, a conscientious effort to remain in Christ's love. To keep it first and foremost. One of the greatest stories about this is a story in in Luke 10. If you don't know this story, uh, learn this story. Mary and Martha. I remember one year I had on my calendar for the year this verse. In, in, in Luke ten forty two, uh, one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. So Jesus comes to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It's a, it's, they're, they're, they're good friends. It's a closeness there that he didn't have with other people. And there's nothing wrong with that. You have different levels of relationships. This is a close relationship. They know each other. They invite him personally. Get the scene. Use your creativity for once. He comes into their home. And Mary and Martha are both in the kitchen preparing. Mary says, I've had enough. The Bible says she goes out and sits at his feet. Now, think of the Lord in your living room, Jesus Christ, the greatest teacher who ever lived, and he's teaching. Isn't it interesting? Every time you see Christ, he's teaching. And that's why the people said, Rabbi, whenever they saw, teacher, Isn't that interesting? He's always teaching. We're all to be teachers. Our children, our grandchildren, people around us. Not even in a formal way, but sometimes more subtly. Teaching, teaching. So he's teaching. And Mary's sitting at his feet. The disciples are there. Lazarus is there. Martha's in the kitchen and she's getting angry by the minute. You can hear pots and pans being banged all around. Until she finally can't stand it anymore. She's an A-like personality. And she comes out. And she rebukes the Lord, turns the whole thing into an ugly situation. Lord, don't you care? I mean, that's an insult. Don't you care? Don't you know I'm in the kitchen and it's hot in there and I'm working my head off to make a lovely Italian meal for you. And Mary is sitting out here at your feet. Get her in the kitchen. Now, the Bible says she was in the kitchen. It wasn't that she didn't do anything. She was in the kitchen. But, you know, Mary must have said something like this. Enough is enough. I'm going to, not going to, uh, I'm going to be with the Lord. I want to hear him teach. Now, you might say, who's right or wrong? Well, our Lord tells us who's right or wrong. He says, Martha, Martha, you're, you're worried. You're bothered about a whole lot of things. Now, here's what he says. But only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. So our Lord gives an evaluation of the scene. And here's what the Lord said. He said, Mary has chosen to be with me as the first priority. You've chosen to prepare a super-duper dinner. I don't want the super-duper dinner. I'd rather your fellowship. I'd rather time with you. Now, this is very important in the Lord's work, and this is the biggest struggle I have. I can get so busy in the Lord's work, I have no time for the Lord. Sorry, Lord, I have no time. I'm busy for you. I have many things to do. Busy, busy, busy. Sometime when people come up, you know what people come up to you and they say, are you busy? Sometime I'm going to say, no, I'm completely, totally relaxed and blessed in God and just waiting on him. People probably won't believe you. Say, you liar. No, you're supposed to say, oh, yeah, oh, man, oh, oh I'm so busy. I'm so crazy. I like to say to people, any fool can be busy. It's getting something done. Mary goes in and sits at the Lord's feet. Now, here's the lesson. Here's the lesson. 
Mary guarded her relationship with Christ. And the Lord said, one thing is necessary. Now, what's the one thing that's necessary? Sitting at his feet, listening to his word. Every time you take time out of your busy, busy, busy life, crazy busy life, and you open the words of Jesus, and you read his precious word, you're sitting at his feet. When you're in quietness with the Lord, you're sitting at his feet. The Lord says, I prefer that to your hyper busyness. Now, yes, life is busy. The Lord was busy. But don't give up your fellowship with him. Guard your fellowship with him because busyness can take you away from the Lord. I once heard of a missions director who had a big sign on his desk and said this, Beware of the barrenness of a busy life. Beware of the barrenness of a busy life. Martha, Mary chose the good portion, the one thing, and it will not be taken away from her. So, We must guard that relationship. Listen to what Dr. David Gooding writes about the good portion. We cannot do everything. There's not enough time. Like Mary, therefore, we shall have to choose and choose very deliberately. Life's affairs will not automatically sort themselves into true order of priorities. If we do not consciously insist on making sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to his word our wonder... Number one necessity, a thousand and one other things and duties, all claiming to be prior necessities, will tyrannize our time and energy and rob us of the good part in life. Oswald Chambers made this statement in my utmost for his highest. It's it's a, a wonderful statement. I'll have to read it twice. It's a very clever play on words. Jesus taught that a disciple has to be make his relationship to God the dominating concentration of his life and to be carefully careless about everything else in comparison to that. Carefully careless. Let me read it one more time. It's a great statement of Luke 10.42. Jesus taught that a disciple has to make his relationship to God the dominating concentration of his life. And here's the phrase I like. And be carefully careless about everything else in comparison to that. And then we have to guard our love for others. It, it doesn't take long before you don't like people. It doesn't take long. And you will find people in life that withdraw from life because it's hard. And you get wounded, you get hurt, you get shot in the head. You have arrows stick you right in the back. Do you remember that time... The children of Israel had criticized poor Moses. That man, I mean, I would weep when I read that man's life. They criticized and criticized. They said, they said, you took us out in the wilderness to kill all our children. You're such a nice man. You dominate us. You rule over us. None of that was true. But then there was a time that his brother and sister turned on him. Two closest people, Aaron and Miriam. And they said, you're trying to control us. You're, you're acting like the boss. And they had a criticism about something he had done. You know, God got so mad, he struck Miriam with leprosy. And what did, what did Moses say? Well, good, kill her. No, Moses prayed for her. It hurts when those closest to you, closest to you, turn on you and criticize you. And you hear about it later. It's like a knife right into the heart. Don't you think Moses had feelings? 
his two closest relatives, his brother and his sister, they had worked all this time together and they, and they ripped and tore into him, made false accusations against him. You can get pretty tired of all that. And yet Moses again and again interceded for the people. God wanted to wipe the nation out. Moses said, no, you can't do that. I'm sorry. And he interceded for them. He had every reason to say, get rid of them all. I'll watch this. Let's do it with fire. I'd like to see them all burn alive. No, no. He says, God, you can't do this. It will be a, a disgrace to your name and the promises you made. So you have to guard your relationship with people. Sometimes you've got to back off. You have to get rest. You have to get away from the fray. You have to. And, and the Lord's not trying to kill you. He's not. And in Mark chapter 6, is a very important verse. Let's just look at it real quickly. Mark chapter 6. Verse 31, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place. I really like that. And rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest. The Lord gives rest to his saints. He's not trying to kill you. He's trying to bless you. Sometimes we go too far and we blame the Lord for it. There's a time to rest. There's a time to get away from it. There's a time in shared leadership. You let others take the front bullets. That's the good thing about shared leadership. I think one of the reasons I lasted over 40-some years at our church is that I didn't have to get every bullet that was shot at the leaders. Others took the bullets. Others took the lead in conflicts and church disciplines and dealing with the congregation or dealing with uh, recalcitrant members, others. And you can step back and say, no, you handle this. And uh, you can comfort one another and support one another. You're not out there alone. Every little problem is your problem. So we do need to learn to sit at Christ's feet and to protect ourselves and, and to refresh ourselves and renew ourselves. It's very important. I try to take every Saturday off. Now, I can't this week because I'm here with you. But normally I take Saturday off. And I take Saturday as a day of early morning meditation and time alone with the Lord. And then I give the family whatever time they need the rest of the day. We can do whatever we want to do. We can, normally we go hiking. We get out. I notice we love to go out into nature in the desolate place. It seems to be the most refreshing. And we'll hike for hours and we'll sit and talk. And we do this rather consistently. We did this with our children and our grandchildren absolutely love it. They love it. In fact, my wife, I was down here praying for my poor wife today because they all went tubing in the Platte River. I said, Lord, just, uh, you know, protect them because the kids sometimes get a little crazy. And I said, my my poor wife is going to be dragged around the river by these kids. So protect her in the tube. And uh, it's not that she wants to live, uh, get in the freezing cold water. Okay? It's cold. It's not like it's a nice warm place, nice cold mountain water. But she's doing it for the children, build wonderful memories and be with them. So we have to come aside and we have to rest a while and go to a, a place so we don't uh, uh, wilt and dry up and have nothing left. So God wants you to rest and he wants you to have leisure. And he wants you to have exercise and he wants you to be a balanced person, not a crazy person. And to be a model of that. It's important to be a model of that. And sometimes uh, we brag about our busyness as if that's the only thing that really matters and We need models of people who know what sitting at Christ's feet means 
and coming apart for a while and going to a desolate place and refreshing the soul. And as you do that, I guarantee you others will do it. Now, we live in a very unusual day. Those of you here are over 60 will know this. There was a time in life, believe it or not, it's hard to believe, there were no cell phones. Yes, this is true. I've seen it. There were no computers for the average person. There were not all these technologies which were supposed to make life easy, which I, as far as I'm concerned, has made life so complicated. You cannot get away from these things. I literally have to hire a lady to do my emails. There's so many coming. While she's doing them, they just keep coming in. It's, it's a, I hate it. I say, you do it. Tell me what I have to know at the end of the day. And I let her answer as much as he can. Steve knows that. He did, once in a while, I wrote you. I broke down. I have to have her do this. I mean, I wouldn't have nothing left in my life. And, and the phones, we have three different lines coming into our house. And sometimes I'm talking on the phone. No one comes in. No one comes in. I mean, it's madness. It's mad. Even the world knows it's madness. And it's not healthy for you. It's definitely not healthy for you spiritually. So somehow you have to put your hands up. And I believe in our local churches we have to address this. The hypermanic living. We have to address it. Uh, and our young people really need it addressed. They are so addicted to their phones. A friend of mine took a picture at Christmas and showed it to me. It's Christmas Day. All, everyone got all their, all their packages. And he got in the side of the room. There's a whole, several families together. And he took a picture in the side of the room. Guess what every single person was doing? Playing on their mobile devices. Oh, what a wonderful Christmas. Merry Christmas. We're all playing on devices. Used to be people would actually talk to each other. A lot of dangers today to the spiritual life. Drag your love away for God, Drag your knowledge of God's word. So here's what I'm saying to you. You've got to get tough. You've got to get radical. You've got to say no. Put your hands up and say no. It's the end to that. You know, it's not sin to turn your phone off. That's why God gave us answering machines. And some of you who are very busy, you need some helpers to help you. And you do need to get away. And, and I know what it's like. I know it's like a rat race. And after a rat race, you turn into a rat. You don't know that, but you do. You start thinking like a rat. Everything is work, work, work. Everything is get up, keep, keep up, keep up. Yeah. That's not healthy spiritually for you. You must sit at Christ's feet. You must learn, lonely, must learn something very hard to teach young people is quietness. Quietness. And I have to tell my grandchildren, it's good to be quiet. It's good to be alone. We've got to have activity, activity. And uh, what's the phone? Uh, what's happening? Uh, I might be missing something. Good. You're probably missing something of nothing. Learn to be quiet. Learn to listen to God. Learn to hear his voice. Learn to enjoy quietness and not have to have a TV on, a radio on. I heard this story, read in a newspaper about uh, this dog. Was, the dog was just constantly shaking, shaking. And uh, the lady took the dog to a couple of vets and the vet said, we've seen this, but we don't know what the problem is. We don't have any medication for it. So this one vet took this job on. And he said, listen, can I come visit your house? And the lady said, sure, you can visit. He comes to the house, and she had four little boys. Pray for that woman. And he walked around the house. There was a TV going on here, TV going on there. Someone had a stereo on here. Kill, you know what boys are like. Four boys are charging around the house with swords, fighting, wrestling, falling down the stairs. He said, can I take the dog for a week? She said, sure. She takes the dog for a week and brings it back. Dog's perfectly, perfectly calm. She said, what was the problem? He said, noise pollution. Animals cannot take the kind of screaming and yelling and television all day long. The dog is reacting to noise. You ever go out on our streets? 
Our streets are so noisy. Listen to cars. Just listen for a moment. God would like to have you silent. That's why they went to a desolate place. I like that. Is there something about going out into nature and with having the sounds cut out or maybe some place in your house? That's why I get up very early in the morning. I like the very early morning. No one's bothering me, no sounds. And uh, absolute quietness. And listen to the Lord when you open his word. The Lord speaks to his word. He speaks to you through prayer. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Before you pray, just be silent. Just listen. And then enter into prayer. Remember where, who you're speaking to. Remember who you're going before. Uh, we've lost these skills. We've lost them. So I'm saying as a church, address these things publicly. Use the passage I just gave you. Guard your relationship with Christ. And you cannot guard it if uh, people have at you 24 hours a day. If the phone has at you, and if you've got so much to do uh, that you have no time for God, I think it's a form of idolatry. So you have to stand in front of a mirror and practice saying no. Just say no. Will you do this? No. Just practice. We're so overcommitted that we can't really do the important things. So Mary and Martha had to learn this lesson, and our Lord gave the verdict. Mary, this one thing is necessary, and she has chosen the better portion, and it won't be taken away from her someday. Please, in your churches, address this issue of hypermanic busyness, overcommitment, the insanity that Americans are living at and psychologically breaking them down, spiritually breaking them down. I do remember a day, I do remember a day when literally with our neighbors in New Jersey, we'd have Saturday picnics. I mean, just on, on, the, on, the, on the fly, you know, my dad would have a picnic and the neighbors come over. There's only one, one car per family, one per family. During the week, cars were gone all week. Now every member has a car. People don't have picnics together on the fly. They don't do unplanned. If you go into their house, if you try to knock at their door, they have to say, you know, what, what do you want? What have you done wrong? Are you going to call the cops or something? Uh, they, they, they don't want to be bothered. They cocoon. They cocoon. They go into their house and turn all their special equipment on and watch movies and that. And they don't want to be left alone. It's even in the church. You invite people over. Oh, you, you know, we, we're busy. I'm sorry, you know. If you go to their house and knock on their door, what, what, what are you doing here? Well, we come to visit you. Are you Jehovah Witnesses or something or Mormons? That's uh, the way it is. People hide. They go to their home and hide. They don't even want anyone around. Hospitality is one of the most beautiful things you can do for love. People, I can hardly get people to come. They would never invite me to their home. You know, they're so busy and that their homes are a private place. And many places of the world is even worse than here in America. Just never done. Never done. No one's been in anyone else's home. It's one of the ways we love one another. And all the hospitality commands are in the context of love. Now, the last thing. Last thing. Look at this. We're done on time. It's almost like a miracle. You have witnessed miracle after miracle here. We'll call it the miracle week. John MacArthur will write a book, Strange Fire, on us. (laughs) Come to this church and miracles all day. So, kept you awake all afternoon, that's a big-time miracle. Finishing on time, even a bigger-time miracle. So, and you witnessed it right here. We better cut this stuff off the tape. Can you, can, can you do that? Good man, good man. I'll even pay you whatever you have to do. Cut that out. That's one of the problems with uh, recording everything. 
you can't be yourself. You got to remember people are on the other end and they don't get, they don't get all this. So, and you lose the nice interaction. All right. Last point, last point, And I know you're ready to go. Practice love, practice love. Oh yes. Now everyone here is going to agree with what I said, but is anything going to happen? That's really the question. And so John says this, he knows the story. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk. Oh, 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 when it comes to love, we are the biggest talkers in the world. Big time talk, love talk, I call it. God talk. Religious people are the worst. Watch them on TV. Talk, 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 talk. Promise, promise, promise. I mean, it's just almost ridiculous. Send me your money, you'll get four times the amount. That was true. Every banker in the world would do that. I would do it. I'd send in all my money if I can get four times back. Big, big talk. Help, help the world. Help others. It usually all winds up being help me. In the end, help me and give me, if you're dumb enough, all your money. It's so easy to have love talk. And, but he says, no, no, no. Don't just love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth, in reality, he's saying. So you can talk to love talk stuff, and you can leave here and say, oh, we've got to love one another. Oh, yeah, I love my brothers. Whew, happy. Uh, how fast can we get out of here? <laughs> then uh, Romans twelve nine, let love be genuine. Actually, he says, let love be without hypocrisy. And then the rest of the chapter, he tells you what it looks like with a whole bunch of staccato commands. Love looks like something. Love is to be practiced. Let love be genuine. And then the many acts and attitudes of sincere, genuine love are, are, are laid out in the rest of that chapter. Most people don't realize that the whole uh, verse 9 to 21 is all about deeds of love, acts of love. Very practical. And then James, James would say this. He'd say, now, ladies and gentlemen, if you only are hearers of love, and you love to hear sermons about love, but you're not a doer of love, you're actually two things. First, you're self-deceived. Secondly, it will have no transforming power over you. You'll be like a person who looks, your, uh, looks at yourself in a mirror and then you forget what you even look like. It's ridiculous. It has no power over us, the word of God. And apart from works, love, uh, love is dead. It's dead. So we have these wonderful exhortations all through the New Testament. Don't you wonder why we have all these exhortations to love? The reason is we forget. We forget. And uh, we talk big time talk, and we even like it, but we're just hearers and we're not doers. So you're, you're now brought under divine responsibility. The more light you have, the more responsibility you have. You've heard these wonderful sermons. You're going to be given a free book. This is the only church that gives free books. And uh, you will now be brought under the uh, authority of the word of God. Light has been given today. Truth has been revealed. But you are responsible to respond to light, respond to truth. Because the scripture says, if you don't, what you do have will be actually taken away from you. And I've seen it in reality. I knew a man, very, very good preacher, very excellent man of the word and then he got in big fights with people and the business deal and, and he just for the next 20 years hardly had anything to do with the Lord's people hardly even showed up the church now this man who had all this knowledge of the Bible was a, a good minister of the word 20 years later he was a babbling idiot he hardly knew anything about God anymore you wonder where did all that knowledge go the Lord says he'll take it away what you have I'll take away if you increase, I'll give you more. That's the biblical principle. The more you learn, the more you practice, the more you get. And so the Lord is teaching, 
divine responsibility on hearing the word of God. You're held accountable for what you know. So practice love. Be a doer of love, not just a hearer. Let's close in prayer. Lord, Father, we thank you for a good day together, a fun day together, enjoyable day together. We have sensed your love here. We've sensed joy and happiness. Uh, We have sensed good fellowship with one another. And we're very glad for these things. But may it continue now. May it not just stop at the parking lot. But may it go on into our homes and our telephone calls and our interactions and our business and our life tomorrow with little children and grandchildren. May it become a living reality that you are at the center of our life. That sitting at your feet, listening quietly to your word is what really brings joy to our hearts. And that we would be models of love, models of scripture. And that we could say to people, watch us and follow us. Be imitators of us, as we are imitators of Christ. Thank you for all who have prepared this conference and their labors and their hard work and their preparation. Thank you for blessing this conference and making it very profitable. But now we pray for the ongoing work in the days ahead when things get rough and the labors are strong. Help us to press forward by the power and authority of the Holy Spirit, we ask Amen. Amen.